Thank you. Well, it's great to be here. Thanks very much indeed for that generous introduction, Andy, and thank you, Andy and Liz, for the invitation. Uh, we've heard a lot about the Middle East. You're going to hear a little bit more before tea. You've, um, we've had Yossi from Jerusalem, Azam from the Mesopotamian marshes, and I came from Burford this morning. Now, for those of you that don't know, Burford is 40 minutes up the A40, but it reminds me of uh, that probably apocryphal, but certainly backhanded Chinese blessing, or is it a curse? May you live in interesting times. Well, I've had the privilege, and I really do believe it's a privilege, to live both in interesting times and interesting places. And for 16 years, up until 2009, I was the national director of the Arosha Lebanon Project. So, Lebanon is interesting in both senses of that Chinese proverb, partly because of its global position, partly because it's in the context of where East meets West, with all that that means in our modern world. But actually, that meeting of East and West and that interesting place within our world goes back an awfully long way. And back in antiquity, ancient Egyptians, Babylonians, Romans, Greeks, Arabs have traded and have had conquest through the land that I called home for 16 years. And it's not just the human world which is reflected in this extraordinary meeting point um, of the continents as been described already. If you look at the biodiversity, it reflects the same. And I've just picked out the mammal biodiversity. In Lebanon, you have creatures which perhaps are more familiar to us in Europe. So, for example, we have the European badger. We have creatures with names like Indian porcupine because they've come from Asia. And we have creatures which you might more expect in Africa, um, the striped hyena, showing the diversity of the biodiversity itself in this meeting ground between continents. Now, the natural world also illustrates, as, as we've been hearing so powerfully this afternoon, how the region is a highway between the continents. And this, this image shows you um, individual bird journeys and how they congregate. And I was describing it last night at supper to folk. It's like a funnel. There's a wide mouth and there's a wide end, but there's a very narrow um, middle. And that narrow middle is basically Lebanon, Israel, Palestine. And so these birds get concentrated into extraordinary numbers. Storks we've talked about, cranes we've talked about, but when we're talking about large numbers, we really do mean wildlife spectacle numbers. I think the largest single flock of storks I counted from my front garden when I lived in the Beccar Valley was 21,000. I was in France last week and six white storks flew over and I said to my birding friends, I don't look up for less than 1,000. <laughs> Now, this rich human history in a land so naturally blessed with extraordinary biodiversity has, of course, had an age-old ecological footprint. You go back to the Old Testament, Hiram, king of Tyre, that's a city in the south of Lebanon, supplied Solomon with cedar and cypress timber and gold as much as he desired. And so right the way back then, the poor Lebanese cedar tree was being felled. And in fact, huge 
forests were felled in ancient times. But whatever was done in ancient times has been grossly exaggerated in the modern era. And the wars that have crisscrossed the country have taken a heavy toll. Both in terms of human communities with loss and suffering, exodus, ethnic cleansing, dislocation and death. But also in terms of the biodiversity, depletion, extirpation, local extinction and loss. It's rather like a chemical equation. And I've, I've got a 16-year-old, so at the moment I'm revising with him his GCSE chemistry. And as I was doing this slide presentation, I thought, you could put this into a chemical equation. If you have community conflict in a rich biodiverse area, you have, from those reactants, you have products. And the products will be suffering and community dislocation, and they will be biodiversity loss. But I think our question for this afternoon is, is that equation reversible? And what happens if you start messing around with the um, right-hand side of the equation? What happens if you start putting effort into biodiversity conserva conservation products? What does that do to the reactants in the first place? Yes, sure, you will get rich biodiversity, if you invest in biodiversity conservation. But what does it do to the communities? What does it do to the human communities? Do you get community reconciliation? Well, I'd like to give you a brief, very brief now, case study in the work that we were doing in a place called Amique. Uh, I'll very quickly show you the communities that I'm talking about and the site. So this is Lebanon. It's a very... Oh, that's not supposed to happen. Um, I need someone who knows what they're doing now. To help me get rid of that. Ah, so is that the pointer? The red button's the pointer. Super, thank you. So Lebanon, the geography of Lebanon is very simple. You've got parallel features. You've got Mount Lebanon mountain range. You've got the Bekar Valley. You've got the anti-Lebanon mountain range. And this is Beirut here. We were working here where the Mount Lebanon mountain range touches the Bekar Valley, and you'll see some pictures in a moment. The communities we were working with, with the Bekar Valley communities around here, are largely uh, Christian and Sunni Muslim, but the communities of the hills above are Druze. Now, I say that carefully, that's with a D, okay, the Derzi peoples, the Druze peoples, and traditionally also Christian peoples. Further south, it's largely Shia, um, and also farther north in the Bekar, it's largely Shia. And what had happened in terms of our landscapes that we're, I'm talking about here was that the peoples of the mountainsides above, the villages particularly behind this ridge, had, there had been extraordinary fighting between 1975 and 1990 in the Lebanese Civil War, whereby most of the Christian communities were driven out and the Druze peoples took over the entire area. And there was a lot of um, ethnic tension between, obviously, the communities of the hillsides and the communities of the valley. In 
into that mix is this extraordinary little gem of a wetland called Amique, important for its biodiversity. And that was the focus of the project where we were working. In terms of what it looked like when we started, well, this is a familiar picture now this afternoon, isn't it? This is nothing like the size of the um, Mesopotamian marshes. Uh, it's tiny in comparison. But nevertheless, because of the lack of marsh land and wetlands on this migration route that we talked about, extraordinarily important. And in 1996, it was all but gone. War had pretty much destroyed it, together with uncontrolled agricultural development um, after the war, in fact. But through 10 years of hard work and a uh, lot of community involvement, same time of year, the picture taken there in 2006 shows a remarkable change. But back to our question, does biodiversity conservation have an effect on community reconciliation? And I think the answer is a categoric yes. And I think there are various reasons for that. I think the first reason is that if you're working on a habitat, you simply can't conserve habitats and species in isolation. It is just impossible. So, for example, at a biological level, the marshland, the water from the, um, to fill the marshland came from the mountains. And without protection of the mountain forests, you have no springs. The mammals that are so important in the mountain uh, nature reserve above the wetland have to come down in the summer to drink the water from the, the marshes. Otherwise, there is no water in the area. So at a biological level, if you want to conserve either mammals, mountain or marsh, you've got to do it together. It's a, it's a, it's a single unit. But also at a management level, if you're wanting to manage the human drivers of biodiversity conservation, things like hunting, things like overgrazing, um, like over things like access of the local population, you again have to do this at a landscape level. You can't put a fence around these areas you have to work together. And that's exactly what happened. The driver was the biodiversity conservation, but it enabled peoples to come together from the mountainside and from the valley to work in collaboration around management plans which controlled these very drivers. That would be the first reason. I think, yes, biodiversity conservation leads to peace building. Secondly, it creates opportunities. Now, this is an extraordinary slide with fantastic landscapes. What you have here, these are the cedar forests, large extensive cedar forests on the western side of the Mount Lebanon Baruch Ridge. You have the Bekar Valley, that's actually a lake, that's Lake Karaon, but you come up and you have the wetland would have been about here. And then you have looking across to Mount Hermon, Jabal Sheikh of the anti-Lebanon. So you have extraordinary landscapes, you have great biodiversity hotspots. You also have within um, a half an hour's distance to an hour's distance from here two World Heritage Sites, the largest Roman temple in the world and the largest Umayyad um, settlement anywhere. You have fantastic opportunities for tourism, but only if you put it all together. Mostly tourists won't want to go to just one part. They want an entire experience. So... That's exactly what happened. And this um, slide showing the uh, image from satellite shows you where we, in fact, thought the best sweet spot was. 
Here we've got the mountain range. Here's the wetland coming away. There's the springs. And you'll see this red circle was a site where we had a collaborative project between the different communities, between the landowners of the, uh, of the Bekar, between the villagers of the local Christian village, and between the Druze um, villages which controlled and the peoples which controlled the mountain nature reserve. And this area here, developed, we developed the ecotourism hub to serve all. Taulit Amit, the table of Amik. It was a, it was a, sorry, a million dollar investment from the Swiss government to create this state of the art, absolutely extraordinary ecotourism restaurant and visitor facility. That was as it was built. Um, extraordinarily, it was built after I left, although I was um, foundational in, in the developing the project, but the team there now have carried it on. And it's a thriving community itself, providing fantastic economic opportunities for local villagers, for both employment and also spin-off activities, such as hike, hiking, guiding, um, guiding um, for tourists that arrive, in addition to that, having hunters, um, and hunting is a very difficult subject, but is not necessarily against conservation. And if you can have good hunting in the area, it can actually benefit conservation. So there can be some guided hunts and so on. Quite an extraordinary set of economic opportunities which have arisen around cooperation. And that's the view from the dining table of the restaurant. These are the organisations that got involved, um, all of which invested heavily, not just in terms of time and money, but in terms of people. And as we've heard so often, it's the people coming together that make such a phenomenal difference. But thirdly, and to close, I think actually we've got something spiritual going on here. I think it's... It's not just getting people together. That's certainly true. It provides an opportunity around a common cause. But there's more than that. You know, in biodiversity conservation, there's a lot of talk about value at the moment. There's a lot of talk about ecosystem services. A lot of talk about landscapes performing function for um, economic activity. But actually, most environmentalists don't get into the work of conservation for those reasons. Most conservationists get into this work because they love nature, because they're passionate about landscapes, because they, they feel their place in it and they know who they are in it. And actually, that's just as true for local communities. And we found so many examples of folk who wanted to get involved in this from the different sides of the different tribal um, barriers that had been thrown up through the war years they, they, they loved their birds that migrated through. They loved their wetland. They loved their mountains, their cedar forest. They wanted to protect it because they knew who they were in it. And they recognized that they need to do that collaboratively. And I think as well as that, if you are working with others in these massive landscapes, you recognize who you are. It puts you in context of the other. It puts you in context of bigger narratives and that's very helpful for communities. Their narrative is valid 
but it's not the only one. There are other narratives going on that need to be respected within the narrative of the planet and the narrative of the creation itself. And I think there's some deeply spiritual issues which can be worked through within this context and lead to fantastic biodiversity results. The otter came back, hunting dropped, the marshes were restored, but also communities reconciled, the mountain communities together with those on the Beccar floor. Thank you very much for listening.